Welcome back to ICU Life and Recovery. My name is Mark and I am the host. And I just wanted to, before this episode start, explain to you why there's been such a big gap between my last episode and this episode. And the simple fact is that I have been having some serious difficulties with my mental health in terms of anxiety. The anxiety has prohibited me from really getting to edit this in any way of a timely fashion. It's made it very difficult to do a lot of things and I am extremely sorry that I haven't been able to get this out earlier but this is literally as quickly as I could physically get this episode out. I have been several times been going to edit this and ended up in tears just because of the anxiety and it making me feel like I was letting people down by not being able to do this and um, yeah it's been very tough and I've been struggling a lot with it Uh, and hopefully next month I'll be able to see a professional and hopefully get something that will help me cope Um, hopefully it will be some sort of therapy rather than um, drug management because I really don't want to go on any more medication as my health is already extremely complicated and a lot of the uh, drugs that you would use for anxiety will cause issues with other conditions that I have Um, so I'm, I'm sorry for being a dampener at the start here Um, My guest for this episode is Kayleigh Dayton, who is a wonderful nurse practitioner who has her own podcast called Walking Home from the ICU. And hopefully you will really enjoy this episode. It is a really great episode and I hope you can appreciate it. And hopefully I will have more episodes coming out in a quicker schedule than this if I can find the right people. So hope you enjoy this episode and I'll hand it over to Kaylee. I'm Kaylee Dayton. I'm an ICU nurse practitioner in the United States. I started my career as a nurse many moons ago in an ICU that I call now the awake and walking ICU. And so I was trained to think that it was completely normal to let people wake up right after intubation and start walking even hours after intubation and throughout their time on the ventilator. So high ventilator settings, ARDS, they have a COVID unit right now in which most patients are awake and walking unless, you know, there are exceptions such as not being able to oxygenate with movement, then you hit a hard threshold. But other than that, they really kept people awake and moving. And we even showered people that were intubated. So that was completely normal to me. Um, I thought that was critical care medicine. And then I became a travel nurse after a few years went to different parts of the United States and was immersed in this very different culture and practice of automatically deeply sedating every single patient after they were intubated and put on a ventilator. I didn't know what that really meant. Um, I just knew that that was different and I wanted to do what was normal. It was part of my routine to do a real neurological exam on patients. And it was part of my routine to mobilize them. And so I would ask my new colleagues as a travel nurse, I was just a visitor, no one knew me. And I would ask, Hey, can I turn off the sedation and get them up? And they would look at me like I was crazy. And they'd actually be really nervous. I'm sure they were scared. Like, is this patient safe in her care? And they would say, no, she's they're They're intubated. But to me, that didn't mean that they had to be sedated or they couldn't get out of bed. And so I'd say, okay, I, obviously they're intubated, but why are they sedated? And they'd say, because they're intubated. And I'd say, why are they sedated? And we'd go in these circles and we couldn't speak each other's languages. And when I would tell them that I came from an ICU where we walked almost everybody, they did not believe it. And the first time I mentioned that a physician said, well, do you follow them with an intubation cart? And that really surprised me. And I said, no, we just don't pull the tube out, but that gave me a quick insight into some of their fears. One of the reasons we don't mobilize patients is we're afraid of losing the breathing tube. And so I just realized it was so cultural and no one knew what I was talking about. They couldn't imagine what I had done for years. And so I just kind of had to follow the culture where I was. And so I did when in Rome, right? I just continued to deeply sedate and mobilize everyone. And years later, 
I started talking to survivors like you, Mark, and hearing about um, how different the reality was for patients, because from the ICU side, we think that people are sleeping. And so I'm sure you talked about that throughout your podcast, how that's just a complete error, but I didn't know. I kind of laughed with some of the nursing jokes about knocking people out and just making sedation jokes, which I um, am very upset and triggered by now because your voice haunts me. But I also saw when I was traveling, how different the outcomes were when people weren't mobilized. And so that's become one of my passions. And I've started podcasts to try to share this with the ICU community and try to get people to keep patients awake and walking when possible. Yeah. Uh, so your, your podcast is walking home from the ICU, just so everyone knows. So I was sedated heavily when I was in with, with hordes for, for two and a half weeks. Now, there does seem to be a, a detachment of culture from where you started in the walking, awake and walking ICU and places like John Hopkins that are also high on mobilizing patients and not just other parts of America, but in the UK, I don't believe there's any awake and walking facilities. I don't, I believe that the culture is, there is no sort of guidelines or things like that for mobilizing of people. And I think it's starting to change mm-hmm. now that more evidence is coming out about if you move people, they are better off. And I think I find it hard to understand why why there's such a disconnect in the sort of understanding here, because lots of the big problems of the post-intensive care syndrome umbrella um, come from things like ICU-acquired weakness. If ICU-acquired weakness is directly related to not moving, you lose muscle because you don't move. All these survivors had different diagnoses, even different levels of sickness, and yet they're coming out with the same symptoms afterwards. It's the survivors that are making us change. The survivors that are coming back and saying, what's wrong with me now? What happened? You guys are the ones that made us look at ourselves and say, wow, I didn't know that that's what you were experiencing under our care, let alone that's what you would experience after the ICU. And no one wants to harm anyone. No one deeply sedates and immobilizes patients because they want to have them permanently disabled the rest of their lives. When people find that out for the first time, often decades into their career, they're appalled, they're shooken, they're, they're very distraught over that reality. So just keep in mind, there's a disconnect, there's a lack of education in the ICU side, and that's why we do it. And it's the survivors that are waking us up. And now, and I mean, we have 10, 15 years full of research and evidence, but it's not being talked about, it's not being applied until survivors come and say, why is this happening? That then we look back and say, okay, how can we prevent it? And so my goal is to get people to ask, why is this happening? How can we prevent it? And then I'm ready to come in with the answer. So not that it's always entirely preventable, but there's so much more we can be doing to improve outcomes in the short and long term for ICU patients and survivors. Patients have to be people that say there's something wrong because they're the only people that know, particularly when you heavily sedate people, they have no idea what's going on. And I think that's a lot of why the culture has been so pervasive in staying about. And if you're not having these highly agitated people with their sort of hyperactive delirium, if everybody's just calm and lying in a bed, it's very easy to say that, well, everything's fine. No one's doing anything. But when you're you're sedating them to the point of they can't do anything, then your sort of evidence is that what we're doing is working, even though it's not really doing anything for the patient. It's more of a a sort of environmental sort of thing rather than patient care thing. Right. Uh, We like to have our bedsheets tidy and our lines in order. When we started this habit of deeply sedating everyone on ventilator, it didn't used to be like that. Back in the 60s, 70s, patients had tracheostomies and they would walk around, they would even eat, they would hang out during their critical illness. And then in the 90s, we started to be able to keep sicker patients on the ventilator and even on the ventilator for longer. And then we started to treat ARDS and we had very old ventilators that didn't have the sensors, all the different settings that we can put on to synchronize with the lungs, to make it more comfortable. So it probably was a necessity during that time to be able to facilitate these high levels of ventilator settings on patients with stiff lungs with old ventilators. So they started to paralyze patients, started to use sedatives like barbiturates, benzodiazepines. They used to use continuous Ativan infusions, high level of opioids, 
and lots of paralytics. And that would go on for days to weeks, but it was so new. There was no research showing what that did to mortality rates, what that looked like after the ICU. So that became normal ARDS patients. But then I think the ICU side said, wow, that patients look so comfortable when they're so deeply sedated. We should do that for every patient on the ventilator. And so it kind of creeped into caring for all the other patients on ventilators because there are lots of reasons you can be on a ventilator. And so that's how we started and why we started deeply sedating other patients, which turned into all patients on a ventilator. And so pretty soon the physicians and the nurses and the people that used to care for patients that were awake and moving on the ventilator back in the seventies, eighties, they had long retired. We had this new generation of clinicians that have only experienced deep sedation. And honestly, it looks more comfortable only when you don't know any other way. So you start sedation slash start delirium. And now we have evidence that that's harmful. So then we try to pull back sedation, give sedationifications, give them breaks, wean down sedation. But the problem is that once you've started sedation, you have a high risk of having hyperactive delirium. So patients come out very confused, understanding the delirium that you experienced. They have no idea what's going on, but they think the breathing tube is a snake. They think that they're being held captive. They think their kids are kidnapped. So they're trying to get out of bed, trying to pull the breathing tube. It's very dangerous for the patient, for the team. It's a very difficult situation. And so when I say to, to teams that I come from an ICU where they hardly ever sedate patients, they imagine that that is the scenario our team is experiencing all the time, that everyone's thrashing, biting the tube, breathing erratic, ventilators are going off, trying to pull out their breathing tube. When the reality is this team and probably two other teams in the world allow patients to wake up after intubation and they prevent the delirium and they reorient them and say, here's where you're at. Here's what's in your throat. Here's a mirror. You can see it. You can feel it. They can write on a board. They can have control over their environment to a certain degree. They can interact with their family. They can get up. They can move. The point is you're much more likely to have a calm, cooperative patient patient that is going to protect their own breathing tube. I've had patients write on the board and say, please be careful of my tube. Like they understand that's their lifeline and they're not going to pull it out. But the rest of the IC world has not experienced that. They haven't had the opportunity to learn that because we automatically sedate patients. And so all they really see when you turn down sedation is delirium. And they assume that that is just the discomfort from the ventilator and the breathing tube. What they don't understand is the delirium and the patient side of, of that scenario. Then if they can't take sedation off, you know, when they see it, patient come out agitated, the inclination is they're uncomfortable. I need to help them. I turn back on sedation so that they don't feel the discomfort of the tube. And therefore I've done a good thing for the patient. So when they do that, then you've prolonged the time on the ventilator for days to weeks longer. And there's no way you can mobilize someone when they're deeply sedated, but it's hard to take off sedation when you've started sedation and certain kinds of sedation make it even harder. So we have a lot of barriers to be able to get to the point of actually getting patients up. You need to have awake and cooperative for the most part patient to be able to mobilize them, but it's deeply rooted in decades of misunderstanding. I definitely think that people need to understand that sedation's not the solution to delirium. You will find no literature that says sedation is good for delirium, and there's nowhere that says that it's a treatment. It's a calming agent to dampen the physical outward symptoms that perhaps you should look at what's causing the delirium prior to thinking about your sedation. Is your patient in pain? Then some sort of opioid painkiller may be useful. The plethora of other causes, constipation, malnourishment, salt imbalances, and the, the, my brain is having a trouble remembering the others. There's, yeah, I mean, there's just so, there's so many causes of delirium, but why do why treat delirium with something that causes delirium? But the part of the problem at the bedside is that we don't necessarily call it delirium. We say they can't tolerate the ventilator. They're too wild. They're anxious. They're agitated, which, which are, are true, but we don't identify the root of it. So they think that they're treating anxiety with sedation. I would also argue that sedation isn't a treatment for anxiety either. I know. Yep. It just masks it. It masks it. But that's not what the clinicians understand. If they look more comfortable, therefore they are more comfortable. But now that I've talked to you and all these survivors, now I see it as someone's trying to get their head above water and we just shove them back down. So now I'm haunted. Now, now I'm upset about it. But I don't blame others for doing the things that they do because they don't understand. If someone's been taught a way of doing things, it's very hard to break that 
sort of, you know, if you've been taught how to do it and it's the way you've been doing it for 10, 15 years, it's very hard to convince someone that something else is better. But I think there's this sort of misconception that no one can tolerate a tube and being awake. Uh, so I had really bad delirium that I've spoken about. I'm sure you're aware of my sort of tale of it. And I came out and I was weaned off and I still had the tube in for three or four days after my coma, my medically induced coma. And I was perfectly fine with the tube. I had no, I didn't feel like I wanted to bite through it. I wasn't trying to pull it out. I was perfectly aware of what it was and what it was doing. And while I was still quite foggy and maybe towards the end of it, uh, my sort of thinking was clear. I was very aware that I didn't need to, I, I never made any attempt to pull it out or or bite it or anything there was no issues with it i kind of think that this is old thinking you know when maybe when we we weren't as good as putting them in or the means of putting them in were more traumatic and so uh, yeah i do i do think that we need to understand that patients can tolerate a tube in the throat it's it's not it's not as if all tube in throat knock them out it, it makes no sense and then you know there's studies in in denmark showing no sedation and minimal sedation are having vast reductions in delirium. I don't get in the in the masses of evidence that seems to be existing outside of a small portion of, of like the ICU population that maybe really do need to be sedated because of whatever. They're so ill that there's there's no way to keep them unsedated, but that should be the rarity, not the rule. I was at Johns Hopkins Rehabilitation Conference two weeks ago, and you're seeing people walking around with ECMO, with dialysis, uh, all intubated. And it's just, why are we having people lying in beds? Because I lost somewhere in the vicinity of 60 pounds, 66 pounds, roughly, in terms of my body mass, about a third of my weight there was probably a lot of lean muscle and a, a lot of uh, there was definitely a lot of bulk also gone most of that's lean muscle and and then we're kind of wondering why it takes people so long to recover you know i was 28 when i was in icu and i would say if i hadn't had other health issues that arose it probably would have took me about three years to regain physically so i don't yeah it, it just boggles my mind well, it's, it is insane. I, and I, I wish at the bedside, we talked about these things. I wish we uh, paused after intubation. Or I actually I wish before intubation, we talked to the patient about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think you would have been able to with me, but. I think patient autonomy is really sacred. If they have an opportunity, right? If they're blue, chances, you know, moment's over. Let's either talk to the family after or talk to the patient after. If a patient is pretty with it beforehand, Chances are, once they have more oxygen, more support from the ventilator, they're going to be even more coherent after intubation. Wake them, let them wake up. Ask them, are you in pain? How's your anxiety? What do you need? See if we can treat it with non-pharmacological options and all the other medications that we can give for those things. Give them time to acclimate to the tube. Very rarely have I seen that be unfeasible. I just, I mean, unless someone comes in extremely delirious and hyperactive, do they need a little bit of Presidex for a few days? But the thing is the way we use even Presidex or even some of these light sedatives is to allow for mobility, allow for family interactions, allow for just being able to be a RAS of zero. We don't use sedation to get to a RAS of negative two or negative three. We're not using sedation to shut them up and stop all psychomotor activity. We're bringing them down from like a RAS of three or four to a one or zero so that we can then walk then utilize all these tools to prevent and treat delirium. And so that's a huge difference. But I wish that we talked about it in that moment to say, okay, is it worth the risk of causing delirium, risking post-ICU PTSD, post-ICU dementia, and ICU-acquired weakness? If we understood that if we cause delirium, we've doubled their risk of dying during that admission. If we allow them to get ICU-acquired weakness, they're eight times at greater risk of dying during that admission. If we start sedation and start delirium, they're at a higher risk of pulling out their breathing too prematurely. Like we increase those risks. So if we're sedating people in the name of safety. The irony is really painful to me because it's not safe to sedate people. It's not safe to break their brains. It's not safe to let them atrophy. 
It's just not safe. But when we're narrow focused on just that one shift or just getting through those hours, then we don't see the big picture, but we should discuss it. We should educate our teams. There needs to be someone standing at the watchtower, seeing the big picture and saying, okay, guys, I know we're in this crisis right now, but what we decide right now is going to determine the rest of their lives. So here's what we need to discuss amongst ourselves and with the family and the patient if possible. And that's when we can really navigate through those situations and improve short and long-term outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think sometimes the sort of ICU team is too narrow. I think that quite often it's the nurses and the medical doctors are the kind of core stalwart physio is usually part of, but not always. And I think the more I become aware of how other ICUs are done, the more it seems the more diversity of professions within the sort of MDT of the ICU, the sort of, I don't want to say better care, but... It's true. You can say it. See, I, I, I think I received pretty great care. I think that the only issue is a cultural thing on station, mm-hmm. but I think I received very good care in the ICU, excellent care in my hospital stay thereafter and then great follow-up so I don't necessarily think better is the word but I think you tend to the more professions that are involved in the MDT the more likely you are to get the right answer so whether that is the patient suitable for low sedation for mobilization how we how that mobilization picture looks like is it up and walking is that the capable or is it occupational tasks that are are going to be the sort of thing that allows them to return back to sort of normal life because the sort of occupational retraining for brushing teeth and other aspects are probably as important as the big physical movement because I would certainly say I was in a very small ICU Uh, we were six beds but five are manned at the time I was in so you have nurses and doctors that's the vast majority of the of the ICU team and there's a sort of physio involvement but not permanently attached to so there are hours from the hospital physio team we didn't have although we now have a psychologist attached to the the MDT and there's occupational therapists are brought in as and when required but very rarely so the things that I felt so I have issues with my sort of fine motor skills now and I think if my fingers had been used more quickly that a lot of the sort of damage that's happened in the sort of tips of my extremities might have been mitigated so I think yes we need to think about mobilization in the big grand scale of getting people up getting people moving getting their their chest muscles breathing muscles moved and mobilized so that they can get off ventilators quicker but we also need to remember the the being able to move from place to place isn't the whole entirety of what a person's life is that there are so many other things that people will need to be able to do being able to clean themselves button up their shirts and brush their teeth and all of these other things that need to be sort of in the picture of mobilization and the other big thing about mobilization is and i think it's one of the other sort of arguments against it as well if we're trying to mobilize someone with a ventilator we're going to need eight, 10 people for all of the equipment and all of the things and to keep them safe and make sure they don't fall. And in reality, when you look at, because the the only one I'm particularly familiar with is the Johns Hopkins one, and you you see them and it's like two or three people and you're like, well, your argument doesn't really hold up because, you know, when it's a culture. Depends on how it's done. So I think they're thinking about rehabilitation. And I think Johns Hopkins and a couple of these other awake and walking ICUs, they're much more proactive and they do more of prehabilitation. They prevent the weakness. They prepare them if they do get sicker to have not lost so much capacity in muscle before then. So for example, you know, these COVID patients right now, at least in the States, we automatically depolucidate them often with benzodiazepines and we do not touch them. Sometimes we don't give them sedation vacations and we do not move them. I say we as in like United States as a whole, we do not move them until their ventilator settings are down to a certain point. Again, there's no evidence behind that. That's cultural. So we think that it's going to be safer to move them once their ventilator settings are low. 
When we do that though, that's when it needs eight people, a saline lift, because now the patient has lost so much muscle. They cannot hold their own head up. They can't lift a finger. They can't sit up. So then they're like, okay, now to get them off the ventilator, we have to get them rehabilitated. What Johns Hopkins is trying to advocate for. And what I'm trying to push forward is this concept of do it right away. And it's going to be easier for the whole team. So let a patient get up a few hours to 24 hours after intubation, rather than a few days or a few weeks, and they will be able to get themselves out of bed. So a lot of times patients are standby assist to get into the chair or one or two people or, or three people, maybe four people max. It's just, it depends on the patient, but your odds of having less work, doing a quick lap around the unit pre-COVID times definitely increases when you do it right away, but that requires an interdisciplinary approach. So I think, again, it depends on the culture of the unit and the facility, right? Like if you're in a small facility, you're not going to have an occupational physical therapist waiting for a patient to come be a fit for them around the clock. But in these bigger facilities, even it's like administration has not prioritized them. So they're still covering so much of the hospital and then they occasionally visit the ICU. So they're not in the ICU. They're not part of the ICU team. They just go to the ICU. That's a big difference than an occupational physical therapist that are there and ready and talking with the team saying, Hey, being part of the sedation discussion saying, I can't work with this patient because they're so sedated and moving their flaccid limbs is not a good use of my time. I mean, here in the States, physical therapists have their doctorates, occupational therapists have their masters. They are very expert in this therapy, but they didn't go through all the education to move flaccid limbs around. They got those degrees so that they could actually preserve function in people. They can't do that when they're deeply sedated, but because they're left out of that conversation and nurses are left alone to face delirium, the sedation just goes back on. But rather if the occupational physical therapist said, Hey, please do a sedation vacation. We'll be there. If they come out anxious, agitated, wild, we're here to help. We will get them up. We will get them mobilized and that will help them calm down. It'll wear them out. It'll help them get real sleep, but they're not part of that discussion. They just show up because they're so busy and the nurse still has them sedated and there's nothing they can do. And they have to leave to go see other patients that might actually be able to benefit from their care. So it's a really complicated thing. I think you're right. Fine motor and you has to be part of it. I didn't really appreciate until talking to people like you, what it really meant. Now I'm like going through my mind and, and remembering patients brushing their own, own teeth, suctioning their own mouths on the ventilator, putting on their own socks, helping shower their own body. In episode 17 of my podcast, Joanne talks, uh, one of the survivors talked about being on the ventilator for 17 days for ARDS and she was showered. And she remembered the sense of dignity that she had being able to help shower and wash her own body. Of course, someone's with her, but she was able to do that for herself while on the ventilator. And you're right. That is part of being human. And that's what occupational therapists do. When COVID hit and a lot of ICUs in the States removed physical and occupational therapy from their units, like they weren't essential, like they weren't there. They weren't going to help save lives during COVID. And it kills me. And that's so revealing of this big piece of the puzzle that we're missing. And we can look back and see what that caused. I mean, the mortality rates were incredible, partially because this is, is a lethal disease, but also we're kind of giving lethal treatment. I think with COVID, it was very hard and that this was a very weird and strange thing. And we didn't really know, particularly at the start, research has been done now and we kind of have more of a, a kind of grip on, on what is a good idea and what isn't a a good idea and it, it seems to track quite similar with what we've understood previously on sort of ICU based things but it's hard when there's a highly infectious disease in the quite often in the ICU to make that decision on who should be and who shouldn't be here who particularly in the early days where heavy sedation and proning was the the sort of like standard treatment then there's no point in having physios or occupational therapists in the department because as you said previously they're they're not going to be able to do anything with them so it, I think it was a hard one of we don't really know how to treat this so we're going to go back to the sort of what we old habits what we kind of know that lets people survive and then we'll deal with the we'll deal with the aftermath after it but if they had under good the literature and had seen it in practice right if they had already had this culture of mobility and they recognize okay we have a lot of people on ventilators we need to get these ventilators available these beds available as soon as possible these people are at high risk of dying 
we need to implement all interventions possible to decrease their chances of dying. And we understood the occupational physical therapy, get them off the ventilator and successfully discharged from the hospital far sooner, then that would have changed our decision-making, but we hadn't established that in our practice and in our culture. And so we were inclined, the sicker they are, the more respiratory distress they're in, the more benzodiazepines we need. And so I'm hoping moving forward that we'll really be able to put these pieces together and make sense of the research that we've had for 15 years. And now the new ongoing research that reaffirms all of these principles and concepts, and we'll really experience it ourselves. That's what I'm finding with a lot of podcast listeners is that maybe they were hearing this concept at the very beginning of my podcast, but now they've lived COVID and now they're so converted to the message because they've seen it so vividly in their practice and and they never want to see it again. I think COVID has, well, COVID has obviously done a lot bad for a lot of people. You know, a lot of people have died and a lot of people are disabled and have their ability to do a lot of things reduced from having had COVID. But I think particularly here in the UK, I think COVID has been helpful to the ICU culture. I think it has highlighted a lot of problems that were existing within the ICU sort of environment in the UK and it's it's broken the things that we're we're about to break and I think that there's a sort of greater awareness of things that weren't good it's terrible that it's took a pandemic to to sort of bring around a sort of culture change but we we are I think slowly moving to a sort of uh, realization that getting people moving is a good idea. I know that Kate Tantum has a sort of garden for an ICU where patients are taken out. I think that's capturing some people's interest and I certainly know there's a garden has been built at my ICU now. Um, so there is, oh, great. the movement is slow uh, and the tube is, that is the sort of argument of pe- people. People don't seem to make the argument of equipment and people moving it. That doesn't seem to be the sort of main problem, which I thought that it was going to be. I thought, oh, we're going to need more staff and that would be the barrier because more staff means more money. And obviously that money's not infinite and we don't we don't grow on trees, but it's, it's strange. And ironically, it would save money. It saves money, but you have to, everyone has to understand that. So that is the initial argument but it can be counteracted with a lot of research showing the financial benefits of improving patient care. It costs money to save money. Uh, So it's a theoretical gain is the problem that I think a lot of of issues have. You're you're talking about saving a theoretical amount of money, which is hard to argue. Uh, I don't surely having a patient on ICU for three or four days is better than three or four weeks, but Yeah, and I think the culture has sort of, as equipment has got more advanced and more sophisticated, that the practices haven't moved with that sort of sophistication and that we're sort of still using things that were practices because we didn't have fine control in original intubation machines. And it's just... Well, yeah, our equipment's evolved, but our practices have not, um, which is unfortunate. And I can give you an example, a kind of a case study of how this all happens or or what it causes as far as financially, time on the ventilator. So I was contacted by a family this summer. Their, this daughter, her name is Leah. Her dad had had some surgery done on um, some herniated discs in his back. And he was discharged from the hospital, but he had persistent pain. He went back to the ER just because of his pain. Everything else was fine. He was, I think he was barely 70 years old was walking with a walker beforehand, but because of his back pain, which should have improved after the surgery. So he goes to the ER and they treat his pain with morphine. Either he had a bad reaction or he was given too much. He stopped breathing and went to respiratory arrest and had to have CPR. It was mostly witnessed. So they caught him really quickly. I don't think he had CPR for very long, but he was intubated because of that. And because he was intubated, he was sedated. And I doesn't sound like they did any kind of vacation. They didn't check to see his, what his mental status was. They did an MRI. There was no damage done. That meaning his brain had plenty of oxygen throughout CPR. And I don't think that they really took off sedation to see what he was doing to see if he actually needed to be on the ventilator and needed to be sedated. It was just that assumption. And then a day or two later, 
they finally try to take him off sedation and get him off the ventilator because I'm sure someone said this is doesn't make sense. He doesn't need to be intubated. Well, of course, he comes out agitated and wild. So of course, they resedate him for another, I think, four days. Then someone, I'm sure, eventually was like, there's nothing wrong with him. He came up for back pain. They oversedated him. The morphine's worn off. He should be able to breathe on his own, except for we're sedating him. He's intubated because he's sedated, sedated because he's intubated. I'm assuming someone made that assumption. So they took off sedation quickly, took out the breathing tube. Well, then he's really agitated, thrashing wild, and has a hard time breathing. And I see acquired weakness can happen. I mean, you can have muscle loss, diaphragm dysfunction within like a week. So they reintubate him. And of course, because they reintubate him, they resedate him for another, I think week, maybe 10 days. Then I'm sure the same question came up. Okay. So what are we doing with this guy? He doesn't really have a need to be on the ventilator. So then they take off sedation, extubate him. And he is in even more distress, still really confused. Leah described to me how he was having his wife push on his chest and he was saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I imagine his diaphragm was so weak. He couldn't breathe. You know, if like someone's laying on your chest, you get panicked, you get agitated and you can't breathe because your diaphragm can't drop and expand your lungs. But because his diaphragm was so dysfunctional, he was having that kind of sensation and he was panicked. So they reintubate him, resedate him. And the family was asking for safety off for him to be mobilized. And they said, nope, nope, not safe. Nope. Can't do it. He's on the ventilator. Nope, nope, nope. They wouldn't do it yet. There was no real indicator for him to be on the ventilator. He was on pretty minimal settings. And then he develops a ventilator-associated pneumonia. So then, of course, the settings go up. And now he's being treated for that. And so after a month of being on the ventilator, they say, well, it's time to trach him and peg him. So they do a tracheostomy, finally let him wake up. He's, of course, extremely confused. And they do a peg, and the peg gets dislodged. And he ends up with a massive infection from that, has to be treated. So he had been transferred from the ICU, now readmitted to the ICU. Once that's fixed, he gets transferred to a long-term acute care hospital for rehabilitation. He develops two more hospital-acquired infections there. After another two months of being in that facility, he's finally discharged home. And then he's been readmitted to the hospital twice since then. And one of those admissions at least was to an ICU. I think both of them may have been. How is that not so expensive? And it all comes back to that decision in, in large part to automatically sedate him after intubation when there was no real indicator. You talked about the healthcare system in Denmark where the no sedation research is coming out from. I interviewed Dr. Strom in episode 91 of my podcast and he talks about his awakened walking ICU there in Denmark. He said something so profound. He said, you wouldn't get an antiarrhythmic to normal sinus rhythm. Why are we giving sedation to patients on the ventilator? Like there's no indicator for it. There's nothing in the, in the research saying that intubation being on mechanical ventilation necessitates deep sedation or any sedation. I mean, you just, so when we automatically do that, we tip that first domino and set off all the rest and his life will never be the same. Even that short period of time that he's been home between hospitalizations, he can't do anything like cognitively. He can't read the paper. He can't play any games. He can't read his grandchildren. And that was one of his favorite things. He cannot do that because he's so cognitively different now. It's been a complete nightmare for the whole family. And those kind of scenarios, I think really capture what's going on and what we're doing, but someone's got to make the team aware because he went to a different hospital, the next hospitalization and different hospital, third hospitalization. No one sitting at the watchtower watching this whole thing unfold, maybe his primary care doctor, maybe not. And they probably don't even recognize what even started this. So we've got some big broken parts in our system, at least in the United States. But I think COVID is going to really bring an awakening. I think occupational physical therapists are finding their voices. They're saying, you can't just kick us out of the ICU and then have us do the cleanup work after. We can prevent a lot of this harm if you'll just work with us and let us be in there. We want to see the best outcomes for patients, but you're not allowing us to. So things are going to change. I think we're having lots of strikes in hospital systems here in the state because of unsafe staffing ratios. And it's, I think we're, we're going to have some major overhauls here pretty soon. And hopefully this brings in the, the research and literature to make sure that as we rehabilitate our system, that we build it into something better and best utilizing best practices. I think every health system has something that like doesn't work or doesn't fundamentally make sense. So I'm in Scotland and we have health trusts is sort of like a collection of hospitals that are you know all under the one set of board that control the funding and and all of that i can't think of of an appropriate analogy for 
so they're yeah they're they're like owned by the same company but it's a it's a board within the, the nhs system our, our problem is i'm treating in two separate boards so my local health board and then the city's health board that's near me and those two boards mm-hmm. don't tr- speak to each other so stuff that happens in one area doesn't necessarily transfer to the other one that's changing slightly now with um sort of more computerized notes and things like that because my my health board has only just moved to electronic notes so yeah there's a there's a lot of disconnects and then you know we're all part of the united kingdom but scotland's health system is different from england and wales's health system so they don't talk they're two completely separate entities as well so yeah it's there's a lot of problems and, and as i said covid is kind of highlighting the things that were tolerated they're now breaking and some of that is is in terms of staffing that people are are so overwhelmed now with the the sort of sheer volume and the sheer broken systems because that's it's it's mostly not the the volume of people but the fact that they don't have the things to allow them to do their job yeah whether that is like physical resources or machines or or whatever it's highlighting where where we've really not done a very good job as a as a system whether it be in the american system or or here or anywhere else i'm sure the sort of volume of of covid has has broke the weakest points and i think i'm hoping that we will have more of a reflection Uh, i know that a lot of our ICUs in the UK, a lot of the hospitals, their ICUs are from the 50s. There's a lot of ones that I've seen where they're in the basement of a hospital with no natural light. My brain is like, I don't understand why that decision was made. Well, I have a theory on it, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to express it because of the other area that is often in the basement of a, of a hospital. But I think we're certainly seeing now had the more recent built ones i believe there was one in southampton where it's full glass windows and and lots of natural light and we're moving away from old way of building icus which will be helpful but i do think we definitely need to reflect more on that because i think there's a lot of things on how we do things in icu that are not great like a lot of noise behind patients where they can't see what they are i believe that's a big contributor to why delirium exists in icu if the patient hears noise but can't understand what it is if i came behind you and i smashed a big drum you would jump you would be scared you would be agitated so why do we why do we do this probably because that's where the wall is and that's where the power is i would i would assume but we maybe need to get again think that maybe that's not convenience shouldn't be the reason why we do things necessarily well i like when patients are awake they can look at their own monitor understand what's going on so i've had patients just see that their oxygen's dropping they can take you know do some breathing exercises even the ventilator like they feel like they're in control they can look at the ventilator settings and see how close they're getting to being extubated they can understand those things those noises i'm sure if initially it's really scary to have any alarm go off but at least they can process through and understand and feel like they're part of the process, which I'm hearing from survivors is really valuable. On my third episode, I interview Susan East. She's an ARDS survivor three times over. So the first time she was given the standard treatment of deep sedation and mobility, and she watched babies burn for weeks straight. And all of those things were included into her delirium. And it was terrible. Next two times she was awake. She was engaged. She was autonomous. She knew exactly what was going on and said her experience was so much better. And I'm sure, of course, if you're so confused and you're having constant noise and scary noises, it cannot help. So I think even if you're you're sort of awake and aware, because this is something that I've kind of became more and more aware of as I'm more and more in hospital as I, so I'm, I'm immunodeficient. So I'm never in a ward with other people. Uh, I'm always uh, what we call reverse barrier nursed on a single side room. So most of the time people don't come in, but I'm aware of how, 
I don't want to say how little consideration it is given to the fact that this is where a patient is staying, essentially. So most of my experience of this is outside of the ICU, but I feel it'll possibly apply as well. And that you wouldn't just walk into someone's house. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't just come in with four or five people and, you know, pulling on sort of the gowns of a big snap and crack and the... Um, and, and these sort of things are, are things that agitate people. They, they sort of create a culture where the person doesn't necessarily feel safe. They don't necessarily feel safe to be asleep and that their sleep can be disrupted because, oh, we need to take your OBS or we need to do this. And I think we also need to remember you're working a night shift, so you're not sleeping but that doesn't mean everyone else has to not sleep too. And I know this has been a discussion on, on various places is why are we doing a scan at three o'clock in the morning? Why are we doing an MRI at three or a CT or a, or a whatever? Unless it's an emergency, why are we doing it then? Because if you create a, a sort of dark time uh, where the lights are off and you, everyone's kind of as quiet as is possible on an ICU or a ward. This will also foster people being able to sleep, that very crucial thing, because that's another contributor to why there's so much delirium. Nine minutes of sleep a day is is not enough for people to be... Because if I think if we took anyone and gave you nine minutes of sleep for three days in a row, you would be delirious without intubation or pain or ARDS or any of these other things that exist. I think... I'd be the worst. I'd be the meanest. <laughs> yeah. And we wonder why people are not engaging in sort of rehabilitation or, or, or anything like this. I think the problems, inverted commas, in ICU are, there's a lot of them and we need to address them. But I think we also need to understand that it's not a, it's not a dig or a shot uh, at people in general. It's the culture has been wrong and we need to change this culture and it's not we're saying you're wrong uh, we're saying that the way this is done is wrong and, and I think sometimes that feels like what the resistance is that they people feel that well I've done this for 15 years and I've never heard anyone complain well I feel you've probably not asked mm-hmm. anyone is perhaps the is perhaps the reason you've not uh, heard anyone complain or you've asked them in the sort of short term after it where people are just thankful that they're not you know they're not dead uh, which is a sort of artificially elevated sort of view of it and I think we need to fix something we need to start somewhere I I don't think in the UK we're going to get to mobilization anytime soon I think we might get to lower levels of sedation Uh, there seems to be a, a sort of acceptance of that and if we can get to that level then maybe we can we can get people understanding it but these other things of promoting sleep patterns and things like that we also need to address them it's a lot more relevant to address those things too when we have fixed the sedation problem because each sedative affects sleep in a different way they disrupt the brain in different ways so it's interesting when you look at benzodiazepines and their effect on sleep and also compare that to their level of delirium that they cause they're the highest culprits. So patients that are getting midazolam under EEGs, that brain activity does not resemble sleep at all. And midazolam has a seven to 8% risk per milligram of causing delirium. Propofol um, under EEG looks a little bit better, but still does not resemble sleep. That also causes delirium. Presidex looks a lot more like sleep and causes a lot less delirium. So we can assume that by choosing which sedation we give, or by choosing to give sedation, we're choosing their level of sleeplessness. So we can, uh, we can give midazolam and then have it completely silent on the unit. They're not going to get sleep. So we have to address the actual sedation and allow the brain the opportunity to sleep by not giving them sedation. But that's like telling the icy world that the world is flat because to them still after decades, despite the research, we just habitually rolls off our tongues. They're asleep. We tell the patients and the, or the families that we tell ourselves that we think that they're sleeping because they look like they're sleeping, but anyways, sleep is extremely important and that should inspire us to avoid sedation so that they can sleep. I, I think the sort of big 
the big takeaway for from our discussion is use sedation when it's needed and when it's needed use as little as you can that that's sort of important and obviously it is better to prevent loss than try and sort it after so again people moving earlier is is better than letting them waste away and then have to work so much harder to get back to where they were or close to where they were so was there was there anything you were want to promote or talk about before we end I think you've captured it well I um that probably is one of the nuances of my approach and what I'm advocating for is to avoid sedation at the very beginning to really ask does this patient need sedation? I think if we ask that, we'll avoid a lot of harm. And it's like when we start sedation, then we get stuck on this roller coaster in which we think it's necessary because now they're wild combative. So if we want to prevent that scenario, we can really triage the instances and the rare occasions in which we give sedation. But I recognize now after working with people around the world and doing the podcast, how different this approach is and how important the education element is right? I think we've really tried to implement the A to F bundle around the world, but I think the education has been missing. It becomes just a checklist when we don't understand the why. And so that's why I created a webinar and consulting service and also modules so that teams can really understand the why. And when they have that, then they can use those tools and that understanding to critically think through each case and each patient. But until we understand the straight information, it's really hard to change anything. So if anyone needs help, support, that's what I'm here for. I'm happy to do it. I'm extremely passionate about it. I could talk about it forever, which is why I have a podcast and I'm so excited to be on yours, Mark. I think survivors need more of a voice. And so I'm grateful for your podcast and I'm excited to be able to share it with people and to say, go listen to Mark. He'll tell you how it is. So thank you. So again, your podcast is Walking Home from the ICU. And if any uh, departments wanted to bring you in for a consultation, how would they do that? The website is www.dayton, D-A-Y-T-O-N, ICU Consulting. So DaytonICUConsulting.com. I would like to thank you for being uh, my guest on this episode. And I will see you all on the next episode. Thank you very much. See ya.